0: When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Welcome in yeah. to episode five. Yeah. to oh, the podcast. For- this is America, the Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, June 27th. Two thousand twenty two people. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody had a great first weekend of the summer and I hope everybody's ready for a fun Monday episode of the air sports podcast. I say it every week. We shouldn't have this much to talk about on a Monday in June. Yet here we are. So obviously the basketball is behind us. If you missed Friday's episode, we did a ton on the NBA draft. Make sure to go back and listen. Today is mostly football. But we'll probably hit a little basketball at the end. Here's what we're going to do. We are three weeks away from SEC Media Days. College football is coming under 70 days until kickoff. And so what I thought today would be fun, last week we did 10 biggest storylines. Today, I want to hit on the seven biggest games from week one of the college football season. We're going to talk Ohio State, Notre Dame. We're going to talk Oregon versus Georgia. We're going to talk all these big games, Clemson, Georgia Tech, Nebraska, Northwestern, so much good football in week one, games that will have impact on the entire season. That's where we're going to start. From there, we're going to stick with college football. We got a little spicy meatball of a story out of Gainesville, Florida. Been a tough couple days for Billy Napier, the new head coach. Florida fans think that he might already be over his head. We'll talk about whether he is couple big recruiting losses over the last couple days uh Billy Napier we will discuss him he had to uh, submit an open letter to his fans I still believe but I understand Florida's frustration and then finally we will wrap we'll actually get to some basketball uh anytime there is relevant basketball we're going to talk about it and there was some this weekend Rob Dillingham the number one point guard in the high school class of 2023 committed to Kentucky I think this is huge for John Calipari and Layden Blocker, a top 25 prospect from the state of Arkansas, commits to Arkansas. So a lot of football to lead the show. And then from there, we will wrap with some college basketball because there was some relevant college basketball over the course of this weekend. With that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day, let me say this. Unless you love Major League Baseball, we have officially reached the slowest point of the sports calendar here over the next couple weeks just not very much going on, and from the college basketball basketball perspective, look, we talk a ton of basketball on this show, but there really ain't going to be all that much here over the next couple weeks, next couple months really, until we get closer to the start of college basketball season, the season ended, portal ended, NBA draft stuff ended, there just isn't going to be much to talk about, and so because of it, I do feel like now is a good time to start ramping up for college football. Now I know it feels like college football is a lifetime away, but here's the deal: we are under 70 days until the first major Saturday of the college football season. Uh, This this past Saturday was 10 Saturdays until Week One, and so what I want to do today is hit on the seven biggest storylines, or excuse me, the seven biggest games in Week Zero and Week One of the college football season. College football is, first of all, we got to just start talking college football because we got to get ready because the season is about to be here. What I tried to do last week was hit on the biggest storylines. Today we'll hit on the biggest games, but also I want to hit on the biggest games because college football might be the only sport that opening night really does matter. You look at, say, the NFL. If the Dallas Cowboys lose in week one to the Giants or the Eagles or the Broncos or whoever, Their season isn't over, and it's not to say that any college football team season is over, but week one really does tell you a lot, and if you lose in week one, you fall behind the eight ball uh, in whatever goal it is, whether it is to make the playoff, uh, whether it is to to get to a major bowl game, whether it is to get bowl eligible, and so these week one games really do matter, and so with that said, what I want to do, I want to go through right now The seven biggest games, and seven's a little bit of an arbitrary number, but I think there's seven really important ones in week zero or week one of the college football season. Let's get into it. Number seven, the seventh biggest game, in my opinion, is not actually in week one, it is actually in week zero. And if you follow college football, you know that the college football gods love us. And while that first Saturday, Labor Day weekend, is really the opening weekend of college football. We do get a couple big games on week zero a weekend before. Last year, we had Nebraska versus Illinois. We had UCLA versus Hawaii. This year, Nebraska is back for week zero after the disaster that was last year. They are playing Northwestern in Dublin. And when I tell you this is like low-key one of the most important games of, uh, I don't want to say the season, but this one's really important. Week zero, this is the marquee game, and this is why it's important. From Northwestern's perspective, look, Northwestern's an awesome program. Pat Fitzgerald is great. They were disappointing last year, but they did, don't forget, they won the Big Ten two years ago, played Ohio State in the Big Ten championship game. But Nebraska, they are a completely different deal. And I don't know how much you remember about Nebraska last year. I think I mentioned it last week. They went three and nine overall, but here's the catch. They go three and nine But all nine losses are by nine points or less. Eight of the losses are by seven points or less. Here is some of Nebraska's scores from last season. They played Michigan State at Michigan State. Remember, Michigan State wins 11 games, goes to the Fiesta Bowl, beats Pitt. Nebraska loses by three in overtime. They lose by seven to Michigan, a team that made the college football playoff. They lose by nine to Ohio State, a team that won 11 games in the Rose Bowl. And oh, by the way, they were driving to take the lead with like four minutes left in that game. They lose by seven to Oklahoma, seven to Wisconsin, seven to Iowa. So they were right on the cusp every single game last year. And they just couldn't get over the hump finishing three and nine. It was historic how many, cl- and I'm not, thats not like hyperbole. Like it was literally, they were the first team ever to lose nine games by nine points or less, eight games by seven points, seven points or less. And so I bring it up because the off season and really the end of last season was very interesting for Scott Frost. He was brought back for another year despite zero bowl games and, and really zero mo- momentum simply because it was impossible not to watch that team and say, they're right on the cusp Let's give this guy another year to figure it out. Now, where it gets interesting is this, is that he, he first of all, to his credit, Scott Frost did kind of revamp the program in the offseason, did very well in the portal, all things considering. They got Casey Thompson, former starting quarterback at Texas. He appears to have the inside track to be Nebraska's starting quarterback. Adrian Martinez has finally left Nebraska. Also got one of the elite defensive players in the portal, O'Shan Mathis, from TCU that was thought to go be going to Texas. He ends up in Nebraska instead. So Scott Frost did everything that you could in the offseason to really get this program back on track. But at some point, you got to play games and you got to win. And so why this one is important is because if you lose this one, It doesn't get any easier once the season starts. And it's not one of those, like, if you lose this one, we kind of expect, oh, you'll bounce back next week and be fine. No. They have Oklahoma on the schedule. They have Michigan on the schedule. They obviously have the teams in the Big Ten West who are tough, Iowa and Wisconsin. And what is especially important with this game and with Scott Frost is the following. If you lose this game, Scott Frost, like I said, he got an extra, basically he got another season everybody thought he was going to be fired at the end of last year. But his buyout gets cut in half October 1st. So if you lose this game, you got Oklahoma in the end of the month, and there is a possibility this guy does not survive October if he does not win this game. So forget the season. Scott Frost, you got to win this game. Nebraska Northwestern, that is actually the game that headlines week zero of the college football season. Let's get to number six, and, and, and I think a very interesting one. We go from week zero to the final game of week one. Remember, week one is Labor Day weekend. We start games uh, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we play Monday night on Labor Day. And the game this year, Monday night on Labor Day, is Clemson playing Georgia Tech in Atlanta. Now, technically, this is a quote-unquote neutral site game. It isn't on Georgia Tech's campus. It's instead at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium where the Atlanta Falcons play. But this one, to me, is fascinating for all of the reasons that you already know what I'm about to say. Now, from Georgia Tech's perspective, I don't think there's very much interesting. I I feel bad for Jeff Collins, uh, their head coach, but he's in year four. It has not improved. His best player, Jameer Gibbs, transfers to Alabama. I think he's going to be out at the end of the year. But from Clemson's perspective, we talked about it last week in The Biggest Storylines. This is a program that needs to start building up momentum again. Last year was by no means a disaster. They finished 10-3, and but by the standard for which Clemson has set in college football, it is we win the ACC, we go to the playoff, and we compete for national championships. Last year, they start 4-3. and three. They lose opening night to Georgia. To their credit, they rallied at the end of the year. They won their final six games, but none of that matters if it doesn't bring momentum back into this season and get Clemson back to the top of the ACC competing for a college football playoff berth. Why week one is especially important? It's pretty straightforward. We get to see, has Clemson improved? Was last year a weird thing where they didn't have the quarterback and there was too many injuries and they had a little bit of attrition? Or is this a declining program? And where I think it matters is, and where we'll see it in week one is what I just said at the quarterback position. Remember, DJ Ui Laganlale. We talked about him last week in the biggest storylines. I don't root against any individual players. But this was a kid that last season completed 55% of his passes, nine touchdowns, 10 interceptions. And Dabo Sweeney, to his credit, said all the right things this offseason. It's his job, blah, 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 blah. None of us believe him. The bottom line is this year, Clemson actually has helped at the quarterback position in ways that they haven't in the past. They have the five-star freshman, Cade Klubnick. They have a transfer named Hunter Johnson who actually began his career at Clemson, went to Northwestern, and has transferred back. And I think DJ's got a really short leash. Doesn't mean that he's going to be pulled in this one. I think Clemson wins convincingly, but if he has those tendencies, if he plays the way that he did late last season and really throughout last season, Dabble's going to have a tough decision to make. And remember, say this about Dabo, you can criticize him for this, for that. When there's a tough decision to make a quarterback, if there's a better guy on the roster, he'll make that decision. Remember, Trevor Lawrence, Ke- Kelly Bryant, you remember that whole situation four or five years ago? Kelly Bryant's the starting quarterback, led Clemson to a playoff, then they got this kid Trevor Lawrence, and week four, Dabo says, yeah, I'm sorry, senior, that's been with me for four years, but we're putting in the freshman. Could we see that again this year? I don't think it happens in week one but I do think if DJ struggles, that call is going to start to happen, and it's also worth noting one other thing as well. What happens if Clemson absolutely blows this team out and Dabo puts in Cade Klubnick in, in, in mop-up time and he looks awesome? All things to consider, Clemson-Georgia Tech is that Monday night game, the final game of Labor Day weekend, and you talk about a fascinating game. That one is it. Number five, 7 p.m. Eastern, Saturday opening Saturday of the college football season this one is really interesting this is one of the ones that I am looking forward to more than any Utah the defending Pac-12 champ remember they went to the Rose Bowl and almost beat Ohio State final score 48-45 in one of the all-time classics they travel to Florida and the Swamp to face Billy Napier the new Florida head coach replacing Dan Mullen in his first game And you talk about juicy storylines from both perspectives. This one is right up there amongst all of them. Here's why. First of all, from Utah's perspective, yes, they won the Pac-12. They did lose quite a bit on defense, but they bring back a lot of the offense that was really clicking late in the season. If you remember, Utah was basically a juggernaut At the end of last season, they played, um, you know, they obviously, as I said, they played in the Rose Bowl, but here were their final few weeks. Remember, they played Oregon at home late in the year. They win 38 to 7. They play Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game. They win 38 to 10. They go to the Rose Bowl against Ohio State and put up 45 points. So they bring back a ton on offense. But why this is important is because it's something I've talked about quite a bit. I mentioned a few weeks ago, kind of had a a, a lunch, kind of meeting, whatever, with, with somebody kind of pretty high up in the Pac-12, talked with another assistant coach late last week in the Pac-12, and while there's a new commissioner and there's new excitement and there's new this, there's new that, everybody in Pac-12 country, and as I think everybody listening knows this, I do in fact live in Pac-12 country. I live right outside Los Angeles. Everybody in Pac-12 country agrees. If we want national respect, we have to go win the games that matter on a national stage. And so Florida is by no means one of the best teams in the SEC this year. But if your best team in the Pac-12 cannot go to the Swamp and not beat Florida, it's again, nobody's going to like sit there and be like, oh, Utah's terrible, they're overrated. But Florida is probably the 7th, 8th, ninth best team in the SEC this year. If you can't go on the road and win as maybe the first or second best team in the Pac-12, I think there's a lot of people that are going to question, Is are we going to get another year without a real contender in the Pac-12? And how good and how deep is this league? From Florida's perspective, it's really important, and I'll say this, we're going to talk about Billy Napier maybe a little bit later in this show, but Billy Napier, the new head coach at Florida, I like him. Everything I've read, I know some people that have worked for him, they love him, they swear by him, really organized, really detail-oriented, I believe that he is going to be a major step up at Florida, but... It has been a bad few weeks. He kind of publicly, there were a few players that essentially got cut from the team last week. Uh, He does this weird open letter thing where he apologizes to the fans and tells them to be patient. It's like, bro, it's year one. You don't need it. It's not even year one. It's the off season heading into year one. You don't need to be apologizing for anything. Run the program the way you want to. Do what you think is best. But you have that situation. The recruiting hasn't gone quite as well as Gators fans had hoped. And so for Billy Napier, I'll just say this. The schedule for Florida is absolutely brutal. And if you lose this one, it's only going to get tougher. They play, uh, obviously, the normal schedule. They play Kentucky in week two in the Swamp. They play at Tennessee by the end of September. You could potentially be looking at one and three, two and three by the end of September. And then you have two cross-division games, LSU at home, and you, you draw Texas A&M this year, which is not an easy draw. So Florida, Billy Napier, um, you know, to, to, to calm the locals, I would certainly say that it would be important to win this game. Another really interesting game that I think is a little bit under the radar right now, the Cincinnati Bearcats. Don't forget, Cincinnati went to the college football playoff last year. There's only four teams that made the playoff. Cincinnati was one of them. They travel to Fayetteville, Arkansas to face the Arkansas Razorbacks coming off a nine-win season. Why this is important is because both of these programs are coming off really successful seasons, and I think both programs do not feel like they got the respect they deserve. So what do you got to do to get respect? You go out and take it. From Arkansas's perspective, listen, nine-win season, it was awesome. You beat Texas at home in one of the great home environments in all of college football last year. You, uh, on top of that, you beat Texas A&M in Dallas. You beat LSU in a rivalry game. You beat Penn State in a bowl game. But go ahead and read all the preview magazines. Go ahead and read whatever. Nobody's giving Arkansas any love. Everybody's saying, oh, you know, it was this, it was that. LSU's going through a coaching change. You want respect, and maybe more importantly, you don't want to lose respect. This is a game you got to win at home. The schedule by Arkansas standards is actually much more manageable this year than it has been in the past, but it's still really tough, Arkansas fans, and I know you're listening. It's still really tough because you don't – it's funny because Sam Pittman over the last two years, he has said in SEC media days and back-to-back years – He has said, we are the national champions in toughest schedules. Two years ago in the SEC-only COVID season, they did not play out of conference games. Uh, Arkansas got Georgia and Florida. Last year, they had to play Georgia at Georgia in a national championship season. This year, you look at the schedule. It is in some ways more manageable than it has been in the past. You have a tough out of conference slate with Cincinnati. You have a tough out of conference late with a game at BYU in the middle of the season, and then Hugh Freeze and Liberty come in late in the year. But you do get LSU at home. You do get Bama at home. You do get Texas A&M on a neutral field. I find it very interesting from Arkansas's perspective. Their first five games, there is not a single true road game among them. And then their final four games, they have three in a row at home. But the point is, if you're Arkansas, if you want respect, if you want to keep building on this, you gotta take care of Cincinnati at home. And I think Cincinnati's the exact opposite perspective. Never forget that Cincinnati is a program that, yes, they're coming off a college football playoff appearance, but they're also a team that one year from now is headed to the Big 12. And so when it comes to the Cincinnati program at this particular moment in time, what I would say, I don't think most people really think like Cincinnati's, a, they lost a lot. If you remember, we talked about this after the NFL draft. These, I believe it was the second or third most draft picks from any school. Georgia was number one with 15. Cincinnati was number two in terms of draft picks uh, 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 from the... uh, I'm tripping over my own words here. Cincinnati's got me flustered. Cincinnati was the second most draft picks of any school in college football this year behind only Georgia. That is right. They had... uh, I take that back. Third behind Georgia and LSU. But they had more draft picks than Alabama, they had more draft picks than Florida, than Florida State, than Miami, than whoever. They lose a lot, but you're going to the Big 12 next year, you're going to be facing teams like Arkansas quite a bit on the schedule going forward, and if you get embarrassed at home, it's, or on the road, excuse me, it's probably not a great sign about how ready you are for the Big 12 a year from now. Let's keep it going. Top three, three biggest games left on the indie College football schedule in terms of biggest games going into week one. These are the biggest week one games and week zero games of the college football season. Number three, it's the big one. This is the biggest one from a you know marquee brand name perspective, but in some ways, I I, I don't know really how interesting it is. I think it's either really interesting or not interesting at all. That is Notre Dame opening up at Ohio State. Why it's obviously interesting, game one of the Marcus Freeman era. I know by technicality he coached the bowl game, but I think we all kind of look at this as the beginning of Marcus Freeman as the face of Notre Dame football, facing his alma mater. His alma mater, by the way, who he kind of talked a little bit of trash about a few weeks ago when he was talking about this game and he said, oh, you know, our academics are different at Notre Dame than Ohio State. Obviously upset Ohio State fans. I don't blame you, Ohio State fans. But this one's big, but it's not big. And here's why I, I, I don't know how big it is. I don't know how big it is because I don't think most people really think that Notre Dame is going to go into Columbus and get a victory. And so if this game goes down the way that we think it does, it's about a 14, 14 and a half point spread right now. If this is Ohio State 34, Notre Dame 14, I don't really know how much that we learn about either of these teams but where it gets interesting, what happens if it's close? What happens if Notre Dame pulls off the upset? That's where it gets really interesting to me for a couple reasons. One, if Notre Dame pulls off the upset or even keeps it close, I do think Buckeyes fans are concerned. Remember, Ohio State is coming off a disappointing end to last season. You lose to Michigan. You don't win the Big Ten for the first time in forever. You go to the Rose Bowl. That's great for Buckeye fans, but That is not where you want it to be. You want to be in the college football playoff competing against Alabama, Georgia, et cetera, not playing against Utah in the Rose Bowl. Well, if this game's close, it means one of two things. The offense isn't nearly as good as we thought it was, or probably more realistically, the defense led by new defensive coordinator Jim Knowles who came from Oklahoma State, maybe that defense isn't quite as good as we thought it was. And so that's where it gets interesting is one what if it's really close? Ohio State's probably worried. If Ohio State loses, they're very worried about the state of the defense. I'd also say it from the opposite perspective. Notre Dame, if they get blown out, I do think it might be a sign to be a little bit worried about the Notre Dame Fighting Irish this year. And let me explain why. Notre Dame, listen, I I, I like Brian Kelly. I, I don't I, I don't really understand why everybody doesn't like him. I mean, I I don't think he's got a great personality but I'm not trying to take him out for drinks at the bar. I'm happily married, I got a wife. I'm not. I'm just trying to watch football games here. Why, uh, you know, people criticize Brian Kelly, but he kind of set the standard over the last three, four, five years. It's compete for college football playoff, go 11-1, and 12-0, compete at the highest level of the sport, even if you're not quite Alabama, Ohio State, or one of those programs. Well, if Ohio State wins this game in dominant fashion, and Notre Dame has to go back to South Bend with its tail between its legs, I do think it sets up for an interesting year with Notre Dame. Now, I think Marcus Freeman was the right hire. He's the guy that I would have gone with in that moment in time, of course, assuming that Luke Fickle wasn't coming, which he wasn't. Where I'd be concerned, though, is this. Notre Dame has a very tough schedule this year. By Notre Dame standards, and I do think those of you who say that Notre Dame's schedule is kind of eh most years, I kind of agree with you. Well, this year, it's no joke. They open at Ohio State. By the end of September, they do play at North Carolina, which I think will be improved this year. After that, they play uh, they, they, they play BYU on a neutral field. They play Clemson late in the year, and they play at USC late in the season. So let me just kind of contextualize that again. Open versus at, at Ohio State. Clemson in the middle of the season at home, close at USC with North Carolina, BYU, and a couple other tough games on the schedule. I'm not saying it's Auburn in the SEC West here, but what I am saying is it's tougher by comparison than previous years, and if Marcus Freeman starts his first year 8-4, and four, there's going to be questions over whether Brian Kelly was the right guy, whether Marcus Freeman was ready for the job, whatever, so you want to get off on the right foot if you're Ohio State. Quickly, let's get to the top two. The second one, I think you could have had it a little bit lower down the list, whatever it's my list. I am super intrigued by Georgia versus Oregon in Atlanta on that first Saturday in college football. And this is another one kind of like Ohio State, Notre Dame, right? If this goes exactly as planned, then I don't really know that there's gonna be much to talk about coming out of this one. Georgia's about a 17-point favorite. They're playing Oregon. Oregon, of course, new head coach Dan Lanning, I don't really know that it's that interesting if it goes as planned. And Georgia, despite losing an NFL record 15 draft picks in this NFL draft, still has plenty of talent. It's in their backyard. They will be comfortably favored, and I'm not dumb enough to like bet against Georgia in this game. Where it could potentially get interesting though is in a couple different places. Again, like Ohio State and Notre Dame. If it's close, if Georgia somehow loses, think about what the narratives are coming out of those out of that game. Well, Georgia got lucky last year. Georgia really can't win with Stetson Bennett. If all those injuries don't happen to Alabama, Georgia doesn't beat Alabama last year, and it's just another year of whatever. That's what people are going to be talking about if they somehow lose to, to Oregon. And even if they don't, even if it's close, even if it's competitive, I think Georgia fans would be a little bit worried knowing what's ahead in the SEC, even though Oregon probably might be actually maybe, maybe the best team on, on Georgia's regular season schedule this year, which brings me to Oregon. Why this is interesting, nobody expects them to win in Atlanta, but remember, Mario Cristobal left Oregon last December to take the Miami job, and when he left, in that going away locker room speech, he said to all his guys, he said, I know this is tough, I'm going home, but I don't want you guys leaving here, I don't want you guys following me, I don't want you guys hitting the portal, because in this locker room, we have a team good enough to win the national championship trust in the next guy, trust in your university. You came here to win a national championship. There is enough talent in this locker room to do so. And so that's where it gets very interesting to me, is when I look at this whole situation with Georgia, with Oregon, Oregon's got a lot of talent. And could this be the second year in a row where they go into somebody's backyard? Remember, they won at Ohio State last year. I don't think they beat Georgia. But they got a lot of talent on that roster, and I would not be surprised if they keep it close. Finally, number one. I'm going long. It's what I do. The number one most interesting game to me. I think if you ask most people that cover college football, they probably would not list this game number one. But to me, it's the most interesting. It's that Sunday night game. Remember, Labor Day weekend, we get games on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then there's no NFL on Sunday. And Monday night, we get college football. We already talked about Monday night, Georgia Tech plays Clemson. Saturday uh, Sunday night the game that we get this year is LSU versus Florida State and on paper you'd sit there and say there's no way that is bigger than Georgia Oregon no way it's bigger than Ohio State Notre Dame but it's interesting though it's not like it's not bigger because neither team's gonna win a national championship but the most interesting important games I think the narratives in this game are huge First of all, LSU, we know it's year one under Brian Kelly. We know nobody expects them to compete at the highest level this, this, this coming season. The last time we saw LSU, they had like 39 players or something in their bowl game. But this is also LSU. They just ran off a coach that won a national championship 24 month, less than 24 months after he won a title. His name was Coach O. We're going to miss him this year. So when I look at this situation, why this is so important to me is as follows. If LSU loses this game with their schedule in the SEC West and a tough cross division schedule, I don't know if they're getting to six wins in a bowl game. If they lose this game to a Florida State team who we'll discuss in a minute, I will be very worried about them if I'm an LSU fan winning the games needed to be a, have a respectable first year under Brian Kelly. Because here is their schedule. They obviously play Alabama. We know that. They play Ole Miss at home, but Mississippi State, I think, is actually kind of a good team this year. We'll talk about them at some point in this fall, but they also play at Auburn. They play at Florida. They play at Arkansas. They play at A&M, and keep this in mind. They're cross-division games, I just told you, at Florida in the Swamp, and they play Tennessee, which is very improved this year, and so if LSU loses this game, Find me the six definitive wins on their schedule because Florida State is, I don't even think Florida State is where like Auburn is right now. I don't think they're where Mississippi State is right now. If you don't win this one, I think you're having trouble beating Mississippi State, Auburn, let alone at Texas AM, Alabama, schools like that. For Florida State's perspective, I think it's equally as fascinating for this reason. Do you remember what the offseason was like at Florida State? This is year three for Mike Norvell. Year one was a disaster, but it was COVID. Last year you start 0-4. To his credit, he turned things around. The, uh, the Seminoles went five and three in their final uh you know their final eight games of the season, although they could have beaten Florida with an interim head coach to go to a bowl game and they did not. So there's already a little bit of pressure on Mike Norvell. Are you really the guy? But more importantly, do you remember what happened on signing day? When Florida State, you go through all the crap of the last few years, multiple coaching changes, all these losses, but the one saving grace was, you have the number one high school player in America, Travis Hunter, a cornerback committed to you. Well, what happened on signing day? Not only does he decommit, not only does he go to another school, he goes to an FCS school called Jackson State. And Jackson State is coached by Florida State's most prominent alum, Deion Sanders. And so just think about, if you're a Florida State fan right now, how much patience do you have for Mike Norvell if you lose this game? Losing season, 5-7 and seven last year, lose to your rival on the final day, you lose the number one recruit in the country to an FCS HBCU school coached by your most prominent alum. And you lose to LSU in Brian Kelly's first game in a make-or-break year? Oh, buddy, I'm telling you, that is a big one. What an opening segment for the Airtour Sports Podcast. Listen, man, you know, I love what I do. I appreciate you guys and girls letting me do what I do. We have some fun talking sports, though, don't we, especially college sports. So what I want to do, I do want to take a quick break. I do want to come back. I do want to talk a little Billy Napier. Not sure if you saw this story. Billy Napier, uh, already the fans are like like college football fans. You guys are out of your minds, but I love it. We're going to discuss Billy Napier next And then some big commitments over the weekend for Kentucky basketball, Arkansas basketball. We'll discuss it all. That is coming up next. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Uh, Want to continue the conversation on college football. As I said, college basketball, really the basketball conversations are starting to really die down a little bit. Uh, But we will have some basketball at the end of the show. Kentucky picks up a much-needed five-star commit in Rob Dillingham. Arkansas, a nice four-star commit in Layden Blocker. We'll discuss that at the end of the show. I do want to stick with college football, though, because there's a few reasons why. One, as I said to lead the show, we're now like three weeks away from SEC Media Days, people. It is coming. It is almost here. And once Media Days hits, it is full speed ahead. But I'm not just talking college football for the sake of it. There's actually a very interesting story going on with one first-year head coach that I've really never seen before. College football fans, I just said it before the break, you guys and girls are crazy, and I include, uh, whatever. I love college football, fans are crazy. And I have seen fans flip on coaches pretty quick. I don't know that I've ever seen fans flip on a coach before he has ever coached a game only that's exactly what's happening with one head coach, so let's get into it. Obviously, we're coming off a historic uh, coaching carousel last November, December, and January, but what I would say about all of the changes, which we've talked about on this show nonstop really since these jobs started opening last September, October with USC and LSU, for the most part, I, I think most of the hires have actually worked out pretty well, and not only worked out pretty well, but but the new coaches have really given their fans A reason for excitement early on. Marcus Freeman, Notre Dame. We just talked about Notre Dame's going to have a pretty tough schedule this year. I think it's going to be hard to maintain that 11-12 win regular season kind of situation that Brian Kelly has put them in. But Marcus Freeman right now has the number one recruiting class in the country in 2023. Incoming high school seniors. Notre Dame fans have a lot of reason to be excited with Marcus Freeman. USC fans. Lincoln Riley's track record speaks for itself, as does his early recruiting. Hits the portal, brings in Caleb Williams, brings in Jordan Addison, has a jump start to 2023 where he has the number two quarterback committed. So these are two guys that just got hired that are giving their fans plenty of reason for excitement. I actually thought Brian Kelly did a pretty good job in the portal once he got to LSU. Uh, Brent Venables, I thought he did a great job putting his staff together and bringing in players like Dylan Gabriel at Oklahoma. But there is one head coach that, as I just said a minute ago, has his fan base very frustrated. It is Florida head coach Billy Napier coming off a weird couple weeks where he's lost some recruits, he's lost some players to the portal, he had to send an open letter to the fan base, and as I just said, it feels like Florida fans have already turned on him, or at least a very small vocal minority. Let's get into it, but before we do, let me just say this. Florida fans, calm down, take a deep breath. It's all going to be okay. And so let's get into it, and let's start with Billy Napier, the guy, because one thing I will say is, when he was hired, it was like, universally, this is an awesome hire, good for Florida, go Gators, Gator Chomp, right? I mean, you go back to November and December, Billy Napier was the hot group of five coach that everybody wanted. Coached at Louisiana Lafayette, don't call them Louisiana Lafayette, they prefer to just be called Louisiana, but he was absolutely fantastic at that school. Starts out seven and seven, if, uh, you know, in his first year. His final three years goes eleven and three, 10 and one during the COVID season, including winning at Iowa State, which was a preseason top fifteen team. And then last year goes twelve and one. The only loss was on opening day to Texas at Texas. So we're talking about twelve straight wins to end the regular season. He has a track record as a, as, a, as an assistant coach working under Nick Saban, working under Dabo Sweeney. Everybody universally agreed this guy is overdue for a power five job. He is a guy that actually has turned down quite a few power five jobs. I don't know if he was officially offered Auburn, but he got pretty far in the process and said, you know, I'm going to pump the brakes. I'm not interested. Got pretty far with South Carolina, said, I'm good. This isn't the one. So when he chose Florida, it felt like, okay, He's been waiting, this is the one, it is a match made in heaven, and it's funny because remember, he was coaching at Louisiana, Louisiana Lafayette, there were a lot of LSU fans that were like, I would have rather had that guy than going to and get Brian Kelly. So I bring it up to say this guy was universally respected, universally loved, but it really hasn't been a good six months since he took over the job. First of all, the class of 2022, most of it is not his fault, obviously most of that class was recruited and either committed or decommitted under Dan Mullen but it finishes 17th overall in the national rankings. Not a deal breaker, but it did finish behind Kentucky. It did finish behind Missouri. A bunch of programs that Florida historically cannot finish behind in recruiting if they want to compete at the highest levels. They finished with the 17th ranked recruiting class in 2022. Not really blaming Billy Napier, but it's something. Then the last couple weeks, it's been really weird. First of all, he cut a couple players from the team essentially cut them there is a rule according to the NCAA that a first-year head coach players that he doesn't want to keep in the program you can essentially do exactly what I just said you can cut them you can say we'll keep you on scholarship the only rule is essentially you can get rid of them from the team but you do have to be you are obligated to keep them on the to keep them on campus essentially if a, if you don't want a player in your program you can cut them for the third time I know I just said it You can cut him, but you have to keep him on scholarship if he wants to stay on scholarship, obviously hits the portal. But last week, Billy Napier cut two, three guys that were believed to be players that were expected to be impact players next coming season. They're gone. A former five-star transfer named Demarcus Bowman, five-star high school player, commits to Clemson, goes to Florida. He enters the portal. Billy Napier feels the need to send an open letter to the fan base, which freaked everybody out. And then Sunday was when it really fell apart. For people who don't follow high school football recruiting, and I'm not claiming to be an expert, but Florida was a finalist for a a high four-star, low five-star, basically the best available quarterback uh, in the 2023 class, a kid named Jalen Rashida. Uh, He's from California, was long believed to be a Florida lean, was set to commit last week, decides to push back the commitment, decides to visit Miami, ends up committing to Miami on Sunday. So you lose him. You have the DeMarcus Bowman situation. You have uh, the open letter. You cut three players. The last recruiting class wasn't good. I should mention, there's a five-star corner named A.J. Harris that was also believed to be a Florida lean. He ends up committing to Georgia earlier this week. And so it's just been one thing after the other, after the other with Billy Napier. It led to the open letter. It led to Florida fans' frustration. But as I said, Let me be the voice of reason. Let me calm down. I still believe in this guy. And while I understand the concern of Florida fans, I do believe you got to pump the brakes, give this guy time, see what he's all about. Couple reasons why. First of all, I'll say this. I know the recruiting hasn't been off to an incredible start, but a couple things. One, he's done pretty well in the portal overall. Just got Ricky Pearsall, a wide receiver from Arizona State. Uh, He was Arizona State's leading receiver last year. Really talented player. I think he's going to have an instant impact in the SEC. Got Jack Miller as a backup quarterback. Really talented. Played at Ohio State. And did get some wins on signing day last year uh, as the head coach of the Florida Gators, including Kamari Wilson, a five-star safety from the state of Florida. Uh, Played at IMG Academy. Was, uh, was believed to, I believe it was Georgia that he was maybe going to, instead ends up at Florida. So it's not as though the guy can't recruit at all. The other thing I would say, don't ever let the first recruiting class, which is far from being done, by the way, determine how you feel as a head coach. And I think getting off to a fast start is important, right? It's not a be-all, end-all, though. Tom Herman had a top five class his first year as the head coach at Texas, his first full cycle after he got hired. How'd that work out for him? Clay Helen had a top 10 class when he was hired. First full year as the head coach. How'd that work out for him? So it's not as though, one, that he can't recruit at all. He's already gotten some big recruiting wins. And it's not as though um, other coaches that have had early success, it doesn't mean that it's a be-all, end-all to immediate success. It certainly helps. You need good players. It's about the, X, uh, the Jimmys and the Joes, not the Xs and the Os. But that's not all. The other thing that I would consider, a few other things as a matter of fact. One, Billy Napier has had some very interesting comments about NIL over the last couple weeks, and I'm not going to spend too much time talking about them, but it appears as though maybe he is not competing on a level playing field with some other schools. You know my policy on NIL. Because we don't know exactly what's going on, I don't accuse other schools of doing other things unless it's super egregious like Louisville the other day. But you lose a five-star quarterback to, to Miami, after what John Ruiz did with the basketball player, Nigel Pack, I think we all kind of have our suspicions as to what's going on, especially because Billy Napier said, hey, we're a little behind the eight ball. In the open letter, he said, we have a chance to do something special at Florida with our alumni base in the NIL space. Let's get that thing going. So I think that's a factor as well. I also think it should be mentioned. It's a factor that the program that he inherited under Dan Mullen was kind of a mess, right? Yeah, I know Dan Mullen had success on the field, But I think we also understand early in his his time, Dan Mullen had success on the field. But I think what we also realize with Dan Mullen is that it completely fell apart really quick. First couple years, 10-3, 11-2. The COVID year, 8-4. But as we all remember, he lost the last three games of that season. One, the LSU game when Marco Wilson threw a shoe. He loses the SEC championship game. And then he gets smoked in the cotton bowl and starts making excuses. Well, you know, this isn't even doesn't even matter. We're, st- we're looking ahead to twenty twenty one. Well, just one problem. Twenty twenty one was a disaster for Dan Mullen, too. Goes five and six before he's fired. Loses to Missouri. Loses to Kentucky. Loses to South Carolina. The discipline is a mess. That is what Billy Napier inherited. And it is going to take time to clean things up. Now, I understand that this is twenty twenty two. I understand we live in the portal world. I understand that there's no five-year plans in the SEC. But the final point on Billy Napier I would make is this. The day he was hired, everybody universally loved to hire, and you have to trust that this guy that everybody loved four or five months ago is the guy that you got. The one thing that Billy Napier is known for is structure, discipline, accountability. I know that's not one thing, but they're all kind of the same thing. Structure, accountability, discipline, um, and infrastructure that's in place. I mean, the, the, the stories on Billy Napier, his organization, attention to detail, are legendary. Legendary, okay? First of all, there, there, there's stories about how everything down to when he got to Florida, that he changed everything from meals, weightlifting, this, that, to where the players can park. That's how detail-oriented he is. He's got one of the biggest coaching staffs in college football And at the F, uh, not the FCS level, excuse me, the the group of five level at Louisiana, he had this incredibly big staff. People would come in and they'd be blown away by not only how many people he had working under him, but how he knew, how every person knew their responsibility on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute, moment-to-moment basis. And so this is all long-winded, but it's my way of saying you brought him in for the structure. You brought him in for the discipline. You brought him in because he's not going to cut any corners so now that he's not cutting any corners, you can't be mad. I know you lost a, a four to five star recruit on Sunday. I understand the frustration. But if you believe this guy was the guy six months ago and you believed he needed to clean up the program, well, this is what happens. One, you win and lose some in recruiting. And two, and this is very important. Not only do you win and lose some in recruiting, but when you come in as a new head coach, sometimes the first thing you gotta do is, Is get rid of some of the people that were in the program. So I'm not saying you shouldn't be worried, Florida fans. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy for Billy Napier in year one either. We just talked about the the toughest schedules or the biggest, excuse me, the biggest week one games. Florida with Utah is right there, and then it doesn't get any easier from there. With cross divisional games against LSU at home, Texas A&M at home or Texas A&M on the road, you got Georgia on a neutral field. You play at Tennessee. You got Florida State at the end of the year. You got Utah, as I just said, at the beginning of the year. So listen, if this year ends at four and eight, plus Billy Napier didn't recruit well, that's one thing. But how about we give him till at least, like give him till at least September. Florida fans, I understand your frustration. I'm not trying to belittle how some of you feel, but you hired this guy because of discipline, accountability, and all sorts of stuff like that. You gotta give him time to implement his program. All right, this is what I wanna do. I do wanna take a quick break When I come back, I want to talk a little college hoops. Kentucky picks up a much-needed five-star. Arkansas picks up a four-star to continue their recruiting role. We'll hit on both of those. I will be right back. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back. Do want to wrap with a little bit of hoops because here's the thing, right? Obviously, over the last couple months, we've talked a ton of hoops on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, but there isn't going to be very much going forward. Rosters are set. Transfer portal is done. Kansas is the reigning national champions. NBA draft was this past week. We had a lot of basketball last week. I just don't know how much there is going to be to talk about over the next couple months. Now, I should mention, if you love recruiting, Pay attention because these next few months will be interesting and we'll cover the recruiting stories as necessary, but for people who don't know, this time of year is when we really start to see a lot of movement in recruiting. The early spring is really when coaches are kind of evaluating the players that they want, the players that they like, all that good stuff. The middle to the end of the summer is when things ramp up. You start to see some commitments. Now, Some kids are going to take until the fall. Some kids are going to take until the spring. But we're going to see a lot of big commitments over the next few weeks. And uh, We got quite a few, actually, over the course of this weekend. One top 10 kid, uh, Matsulis Buzelis actually committed to the G League Ignite program. I'll probably talk about G League Ignite on Fridays where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. I upset some people over there. But G League Ignite, credit to them, they got a five-star kid But on top of that, we had two marquee commitments in terms of the class of 2023, kids that are going to be seniors this coming fall, that are going to have impact on college basketball in the 2023-2024 season. And so I want to talk about both now. Now, I will say with each of these players, I did do an individual breakdown on YouTube. If you're not following on YouTube, uh, make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. But essentially what I'm trying to tell you is, Two big commitments, let's get into each, and it'll be a little bit more abbreviated than it was on YouTube, but let's start with the first one. It came on Friday night. Rob Dillingham, the number one point guard in the high school class of 2023, top 10 player, was initially, crazy recruitment, was at one point believed to be a Kentucky lean, at one point believed to be a Memphis lean. He actually committed to NC State, decommitted after this past season. Well, on Friday, he made his second and what we assume to be his final college announcement when he kind of he cut his list down to four. Kentucky, Louisville, Auburn, and USC. And drum roll, please. Where did he go? By the way, I know some of you hate the drum roll, but a lot of you love it, so we gotta do it. A... Rob Dillingham, number one point guard in America. He commits to the University of Kentucky. And I cannot tell you. How big this is for Kentucky, how important it is for the Wildcats. This one's really important for John Calipari. I'm just going to tell you, it's really important for John Calipari, so let's break it down. First of all, the kid is a really good player, okay? And I do think at the end of the day, like there's been a lot of talk about John Calipari, this and that, and he's losing his touch. John Calipari can still close on a really talented player, and that's exactly who this kid is. He's not super big. He's not super like bulky and strong. He's about six foot one six foot two about 16570 pounds. but this kid is a walking bucket and a walking highlight. Um, you know one of the leading scorers in the EYBL, which is obviously the summer circuit for Nike, um, a guy that can get to the rim, a guy that has an assortment of all sorts of step backs and three pointers and all this and all that. And so I know there's been some frustration with Kentucky fans about not only the style of play, but the entertainment value that comes with their team. Now, I don't think you could really complain this past year, but if you're looking for entertaining, this kid is going to be it. And more importantly, he's a really good player. It's not just that he's hoisting up 38-foot threes and trying to dunk from the foul line. He is a really good player, the number one high school point guard in America, and a guy that is the entertainment value is through the roof. I think equally of importance... I think he's the first real big-time point guard that Kentucky has had in a while. and To me, that's important for for two reasons. First of all, let's never forget, John Calipari's best teams historically have been when you have a difference maker at point guard. I'm not comparing this kid to John Wall, who was a number one overall pick. I'm not comparing him to De'Aaron Fox, who was a top, I think, number five overall to Sacramento. But John Calipari's best teams... The ones that have been in position to win at the highest level, for the most part, have a point guard that can beat you off the dribble, make plays at the rim, and that's who this guy is. You had it in 2010 with John Wall when Kentucky was the best team in college basketball, even if they didn't win the national championship. Going back to John Calipari's Memphis days, Derrick Rose on the cusp of a championship at Memphis, Tyreek Evans was really good. John Wall at Kentucky, as I mentioned. Um, you know you go through some of the guys that he's had at Kentucky Tyler Uless SEC player of the year Jeff T or not Jeff Teague Marquise Teague uh, Marcus Teague I don't know why I said Marquise Marcus Teague I don't really know that he was that guy necessarily but you need that lead guard that is exactly who John Calipari has had the most success with and that's exactly who they got here it was funny I was texting with my buddy Sam who runs the Torres on UK account he said Aaron, is this the most exciting guard that Kentucky has gotten signed, well, committed at least, maybe signed eventually since the De'Aaron Fox Malik Monkier in 2016, 2017? And I think the answer is yes. So not only are you getting a really good player, you're getting a player whose skill set historically has thrived at Kentucky under John Calipari. So I think it's a great first piece to the, class of tw- uh, to the team that is 2023, 2024. And let me take it a step further. We've spent a lot of time this offseason talking about everything that's gone wrong at Kentucky, and you don't need me to go through it. But on top of just simply losing to St. Peter's in round one, what I do think has been disappointing and maybe frustrating for Kentucky fans, and it's something that I've talked about on this show, I feel like John Calipari for years, he was the guy, he was ahead of everybody on everything. He was the first one to play neutral court games when nobody wanted to play neutral court games. Now everybody's playing neutral court games. He was the first one to have a preseason NBA combine. He he was doing stuff years before anybody else thought to do it. The one and done is obviously the most famous one. This offseason, I thought he has been way too reactive than proactive. The guy who had answers for everything felt like he was a step behind all offseason. First of all, the St. Peter's loss, unexcusable. We all understand that. But after that, think about everything that's happened. Jay Lucas, his lead recruiter, his not his lead recruiter, but one of his top assistants, leaves for Duke. When Jay Lucas leaves, what does John Calipari say? Oh, he thought I, he, I was going to be mad at him when he came to me, but blah, 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 blah. It's like, that's not what you say when you lose a coach to Duke. If anything, you just say, look, Jay is a bright young guy. We hate to lose him but we are going to come back stronger than ever, and we wish him nothing but the best of luck. But to say, oh, he thought I was going to be mad, like, what are you, a a dad? Did you just find Jay Lucas's cigarettes in the the glove compartment? Like, come on now. Then there was the Baylor-Shireman deal, which we talked about. That was the transfer to Creighton. Um, You remember during that recruitment, a lot of NIL conversation. I told you it was not NIL-related. I am positive on that. Uh, I know some of the folks at Creighton. I know how the NIL situation is set up. Baylor Shireman also, by the way, is from Nebraska, just a probably about an hour and a half to two-hour drive from the Creighton campus. But you have John Calipari's, one of his ops guys, T.J. Beisner, who I, I don't really know well, but I've always liked him, and he's been nice to me when we've interacted, tweeting about, we'll never deal with that. we'll never make NIL guarantees, da And it's like, okay, I understand you're frustrated about the current space of NIL. I get all that. We just talked about Billy Napier a minute ago. There's football coaches that are frustrated. There's basketball coaches that are frustrated. But one, this is the new world. Two, even if your AD is not letting you get down and dirty like some other schools are, and I don't believe Creighton is one of them. I'm positive that they're not. You can't have ops guys tweeting and saying stuff, speaking on behalf of the program. Again, go back to Duke. Imagine if some Duke operations guy was tweeting about this recruiting this and this recruiting that and we'll never do this in recruiting you'd be like John Shire has no control of that program what is he doing you know I I live in LA Mick Cronin I think he's had a great couple years every message about that program is coming directly from Mick Cronin there aren't ops guys there aren't assistant coaches there aren't players there aren't student managers tweeting on his behalf same with Bruce Pearl at Auburn. Same with Nate Oates at Alabama. Same with Eric Musselman at Arkansas. I thought that was a really bad look for John Calipari. I thought it was a really bad look when he was a step behind Milt Wagner, the, the grandfather of DJ Wagner, the number one high school player in America, ends up getting a job at Louisville. So why I think this Rob Dillingham commitment is important is for this reason. I believe that this is the first time all offseason that John Calipari has been reactive to something, or or proactive rather than reactive. What what do I mean? The DJ Wagner thing is something I've gone over on this show two, three, four times. Number one player in the class of 2023, his dad played for John Calipari, was thought to be a lock, then Louisville hires Kenny Payne, Louisville hires his grandfather in an operations role, and an alumni relations role, and it appears as though DJ Wagner's going to Louisville. I know there's some Kentucky fans holding out hope, maybe Dillingham and, and, and DJ Wagner can play together. It ain't happening. DJ Wagner's going to Louisville. But what I respect about John Calipari, what I appreciate that he finally did, rather than sitting on his heels, rather than waiting for the DJ Wagner news to hit and then everybody gets mad at him again like they have been, he was, again, proactive rather than reactive. He didn't wait. He didn't sit back. He said, okay, who's another guard that we can get Who's, a, who's the next guy on our board? Let's go get him. And you just got the number one point guard in America, DJ Wagner more of a combo guard. That to me is important. John Calipari has to take the bull by the horns. You're getting paid $8 million a year. You have to take control of things. I thought he did that here. And finally, let me just say this. I just think it's some positive momentum for the program that is desperately, desperately needed this offseason. Again, you don't know I mean? I just went through the whole offseason, starting with St. Peter's, Um, You know, you really go back to two years ago when Kentucky finished 9-15 and in that COVID year. It's just been one negative headline after another after another. This gives you a little bit of positive momentum. Now, there's a segment of the Kentucky fan base. Until you prove it in the NCAA tournament, we're not buying what you're selling, John Calipari. But I'll tell you, I I really do think, and I'll say this, I really do think that Kentucky's probably not in as bad a shape as a program as a lot of people think. NCAA tournament upsets happen. I'm not excusing it, whatever. But at the same time, this program is returning a National Player of the Year, a point guard who led the SEC in assists, Severe Wheeler, and I know he's not a perfect point guard, but Severe Wheeler, CJ Frederick, Antonio Reeves are really good, Cason Wallace, I believe is going to be a top 10 pick next year. By the way, if you missed it on the Air Torres Podcast YouTube channel, I went ahead and talked the next, the top prospects in the 2023 class. I think Cason Wallace is that guy. And so I don't believe things are nearly as bleak at Kentucky as people make it out to be. I believe you have a top 10 team headlined by the national player of the year in 2022, 2023, maybe top five, depending on how the pollsters feel. But you needed some offseason momentum. You got your first commit in 2023, Reed Shepard, the son of Jeff Shepard. You needed some buzz. You get it in Rob Dillingham, and I'll just tell you. I think this is an important commitment. I give John Calipari credit. He was proactive instead of reactive. Great second piece for the class of 2023. And I believe Kentucky will get Listen, as long as John Calipari's there, every year you're going to enter a season with a chance to win it all. And these two pieces, Rob Dillingham and Reed Shepard, are a great first start. and We'll figure out who is surrounding them in 2023-2024. Finally, I do want to wrap another piece of news. Leighton Blocker, really interesting player. So Leighton Blocker's from uh, from the Arkansas area, I believe Little Rock, played last year at Sunrise Christian Academy. Top 30 player who is ascending. I was talking to my buddy Jackson Collier who covers Arkansas on Saturday in the lead up to this commitment. And he said, look, if you look at all the advanced numbers out of AAU... He's been better than the ranking reflects. And I believe, and I don't want to speak for Jackson, but Jackson basically said he's going to move up the recruiting rankings. I've obviously watched some film on this kid. I do not believe I've seen him in person, but I believe very much what Jackson said is that this kid is on the way up. Anyway, Layden Blocker, about a 6'3 guard, Sunrise Christian, originally from Arkansas. And on Saturday, he makes his college commitment. Drum roll, please. <laughs> like Travis Barker there. Courtney Kardashian's husband, the drummer. Leighton Blocker commits to the Arkansas Razorbacks. Another nice pickup for the SEC and another great pickup for Eric Musselman in Arkansas, which I believe right now, and and this was what I really talked about on YouTube, maybe the hottest brand in basketball recruiting. There there, there are schools that are recruiting at an elite level, Gonzaga, UCLA, Kentucky, Duke. But in terms of an ascending brand, I don't know that there's anything quite like Arkansas. First of all, let's, let's go through the laden blocker thing like we just did with Rob Dillingham. Six-foot-three guard, combo kid, and I'll just tell you, uh, I said this in the YouTube video, you know, everybody in life has a type, right? You know, I was just on a bachelor party with some buddies. We were all responsible. We didn't do anything that would get us in trouble when we went back home. But you know that everybody's got a type, and when you see this guy checking this out, and that, the point I'm trying to make, I'm getting off subject, getting inappropriate. I apologize. The point I'm trying to make, we all have a type in life. And Eric Musselman, on the basketball court, he's certainly got a type. You got to be athletic. You got to be quick twitch. You got to compete on both ends of the floor. It's funny, uh, Eric Musselman a few times this summer has tweeted at our Torres on the Hogs account, and he said, You know, a couple of our guys, Jordan Walsh, one of his freshmen, is a violent defender. That is what Eric Musselman expects. Quick twitch, competitive, and you play hard on both ends of the floor. That's who Leighton Blocker is. I really enjoyed watching him on film. I have not seen him in person, but super quick twitch, jumps passing lanes, competes, attacks the rim. That's exactly who Arkansas is getting. He is their first commit for 2023, but I'll tell you this. What did I just say a second ago? The hottest recruiting brand in college basketball right now, I believe, is Arkansas. A program that is very much on the rise. A program that I think what's important with Arkansas is this. This is now their, if he is the first piece to what is likely another top 10 class, this is now three out of four years that Eric Musselman has cleaned up in recruiting. His first full class in 2020, that was the year he signed Moses Moody who obviously is now an NBA champion. Jalen Williams was just drafted by the Oklahoma City Thunder. Devo Davis is still on the team. That was a top 10 class nationally. 2021, he went more transfer portal. The 2022 class that had just arrived on campus to play next season, number two in the country, three McDonald's All-Americans, six top 100 players. And now you get another top 25, top 30 kid to start 2023. He is off to a fast start. And like I said, I just don't know how many programs... Outside of really Duke, that are recruiting at this level that 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 Eric Musselman is right now at Arkansas. Finally, what I would say is, I really do think it sets up Arkansas to have another elite team going into next year. And what I just say about Kentucky with John Calipari, as long as John Calipari is at Kentucky, you can criticize this and talk about that, and I wish he did this and the style of play. When you have John Calipari, he's gonna by 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 the end of May into June, he's gonna have a team good enough to win the national championship. And that's kind of where we're now at with Arkansas. We know about the buzz about Arkansas coming into 2022, 2023. I have them ranked number two in the country, or number three maybe, behind North Carolina and Houston. So they're gonna be great this year. And these are two great building blocks. This is a great building block, excuse me, to start looking ahead to 2023. What I think will be interesting about 2023, 2024, you have your four-star, five-star, French five-star guard. But like I said, in 2022, they signed six top 100 players. And thank God I'm not on video because I just held up seven fingers when I said six. Don't judge me. But six top 100 players, they're not all going to be one and dones. And so the question now is if two or three of them, and I think we all think Nick Smith Jr., Anthony Black, and probably Jordan Walsh are going to be one and done, There's still three top 100 players that you start thinking about what the roster will look like in 2023, 2024. Well, here's who's left. Darian Ford, 6'3, 6'4 guard, who actually won the Arkansas High School Player of the Year this past year. Uh, I saw him in person the other day, or a few uh, about a year ago, at the Pangos All American Camp. Kids a hooper, man. Lefty, competes, plays hard. What did I say about an Eric Musselman type? You have Barry Dunning Jr., 6'6, who was the Alabama High School Player of the Year. You have Joseph Pinion, 6'5 forward, three point shooter, also from Arkansas. So you now have, forget what happens in the portal. Forget what happens if you keep a couple of these guys for an extra year or two, which I think Arkansas will. They just brought in four, five transfers. They're not going to lose all of them after one year. So think about the fact that you're probably going to have one or two of those guys back. I think Trevon Brazil is a player who could break out, but not enough where he goes to the NBA. Same with Jalen Graham, who is all Pac-12 at Arizona State. Then you have three top 100 players in Joseph Pinion, in Barry Dunning, and in Darian Ford. And you now have a great start to the 2023 class with Leighton Blocker. So if you missed any of that, uh, also on YouTube, uh, breakdowns are available of Dillingham and Leighton Blocker. But big weekend in recruiting, and just pay attention. It ain't slowing down anytime soon. This thing is just getting started in terms of recruiting. All right, with that said, I do think it is time for me to get out of here. What an episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. They say you can't do a college sports podcast in late June. They're idiots, all of them, all the haters. That said Torres can't do it. He can't put together an hour of good content. Who's laughing now, grandma? No, nah, I'm just kidding. I don't know who I don't even know who's criticizing me, but first of all, I hope everybody's doing well. We'll be on a normal schedule this week. Obviously, next Monday is July 4th. Probably two episodes that week. So we got stuff going. We got What do they say? We got Irons in the Fire. That's what we do on the Air Torres podcast. Thank you guys for your support. June is trending to be um, significantly up from last year. May and April were significantly up. Basically, every month this year has been significantly up from last year. June is expected to be the same as we close out the month. Before we get out of here, I want to make sure, if you're not subscribed, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, tell a friend, tag a friend, be a friend to AT. That's what we do on this show. I should mention, by the way, also, Many of you picked up the college football betting show with Aaron Torres. Uh, that show's coming back. We're going to start episodes probably right after July fourth. Kind of doing some breakdowns of some of the, um, you know, some of the big things going on in the world of college football. We'll probably start by conference previews or or over under win totals. And so, if you're not subscribed to that show, I really do encourage you to do so. That show is also on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, whatever. But again, um, yeah. College Football Betting with Aaron Torres. Make sure you're subscribed to that as well. Uh, Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. We'll bring back the mailbag on Wednesday. Plenty of good stuff to hit on. And I should mention, by the way, make sure you're subscribed on YouTube. We talk about that all the time. And make sure, if you're a fan of any individual team, we are now up to, I believe it's eight Torres on accounts. So we have Torres on UK, which is Kentucky, Torres on UConn, Torres on Arizona, Torres on the Vols, which is obviously Tennessee, Torres on Auburn, Torres on Texas A&M, Torres on Indiana, and Torres on the Hogs. It's a lot of Torres. It's a lot of Torres. Some might say too much, I say not enough. Before we get out of here, thank you again. Appreciate everybody's support. Uh, we'll be back Wednesday. Fun episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I'm telling you what, man. I'm starting to gear up for college football. The kid is hyped. We should, We should. By the way, we got some fun stuff coming up as well. We got some fun stuff coming up as well uh, for Aaron Torres Media, some new podcasts. I'm just really excited about the future of this show and of what we're doing at AT Media. With that said, it's time for me to go. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Redick, you F-head. Why'd you block me? I'll be back on Wednesday. New episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Appreciate everybody's support. Take care now. Bye-bye then